Okay, just say hi and sit down. My goodness. Okay, we're looking, we're doing elements of theology. We started a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, and we looked at soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. We spent two weeks looking at the Father. Last week we looked at Jesus Christ. Last week I did something a little bit different. I printed out my notes. So first of all, you need to look at the notes that you have. At the date, if it says the 17th, you have the wrong notes. Uh, we were passing them out, and I think Scott got a little too excited and started passing out. Now, if you want last week's notes, then you can have those. Is everybody good? Does everybody have notes that wants notes? Everybody good there, too? All right. Scott has none anyway, so you're out of luck. Uh, I'm just kind of doing it this way because we've got a lot of scripture we're going through, and Boomy threatened to quit if I made her put all those into the computer and shine them up on the board. So, and rather than you sitting there and trying and get all the notes with me speaking so fast, I just thought I'd try this format. A few people came in the back last week and said they appreciated it. And so we'll just do it again. The notes that you have are the notes that I teach off of, and so we'll see how it goes this one more time. One other thing before we get started, I want to lift up our sister Glory. Glory um, was here at church this morning. We're really, for the past couple of weeks, she's been feeling a little dizzy. She was here this morning, and it kind of hit her hard, and she realized that she needs to go to the doctor. And so she had her son drive her over to the hospital, and I went to visit her tonight before service. Um, she was very dizzy, could hardly stand up, lost a little bit of feeling in her hand and I think in her legs, she said. And so they ran a battery of tests in an MRI today and she should find out the results tomorrow. So when you think about it, lift up glory in prayer. We'll go ahead and pray for her right now. Father, I do lift up my sister Glory and I pray that you would meet her. I know she's going to be in the hospital overnight, that you would meet her there that, Father, you would just give her, again, that peace that surpasses understanding, that you would bless her with the knowledge of who you are and the care that you have for her. I pray, Father, for a healing in her life. I pray, Lord, that you would just do that work and that you would go before even the doctors and do that so that when the doctors look at the test, they see you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless her, that you would speak to her, that you would give her that peace that surpasses understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we based our examination into the person of Jesus Christ with the question that Jesus asked his disciples. There were many thoughts of the day and who Jesus really is. He was a sensation. We've got this man who's going throughout the countryside and making these great, great proclamations, making these determinations on who he is, and doing these great works and these miracles. He was the latest sensation. There had been others, but... This one was a little bit different. Some say it's the prophet who has come back to life. Others say it was Elijah, and I think Herod was the one. He thought it might have been John the Baptist come back to life, reincarnated, if you will. That would concern him because he had John beheaded. And then Jesus finally turned. And again, I can just picture this in my mind because when he's asking the apostles, I, I, whenever I read that section of Scripture, it's as if he is asking me, it says in Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man is? And so who, who, do these, who does everybody say that I am? And so he kind of turns and gets in their face. Who do you say that I am? And that is a question that all of creation, all of mankind throughout all of the ages is going to have to answer. Who do you say that I am? 
everybody is going to know. Some people, they're going to make the determination a little too late at the great white throne judgment. But nonetheless, it is a question that everybody will answer. Down in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, because again, Peter was giving him his answers and all, but then he said, but who do you say that I am? And again, we need to make that determination. And so last week, we looked at the first four points that I have here. The answer to that question, we looked at the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. We really went through this in detail this morning in our study in Colossians. We have the CD just before you go out the front door to the right. There's that little black box on the wall. There, just take them and listen to it and pass them out, send it on to somebody else. But nonetheless, pre-existence of Jesus Christ. We saw very emphatically this morning that he was there at creation. The same God that redeemed us is the same God who has created us. He appears as the angel of the Lord many times in the Old Testament. We looked at the series of scripture concerning that. Angel means messenger, messenger of the Lord. Jesus is the word. We saw the singularity of God in Isaiah chapter 44 through 46. Many times God is spoken of as one. But we saw the polarity of God as well in scriptures such as Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, 11, 7 in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. And then we saw the confirmation of the New Testament in John 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the, he was in the beginning with God. Now, next week, I'm assuming we're going to get through this today, next week we're going to look at the Holy Spirit, and then the week or two weeks, whatever, however it works out, we're going to look at the Trinity, And again, it's so hard because the Bible, or I shouldn't say hard, but so beyond us. Because the Bible definitely tells us that the Lord God, the Lord is one. There's no doubt about that. But the Father obviously is God. Jesus Christ, as we'll see, is called God just flat out in the scriptures. And so is the Holy Spirit. And so we have the three is one and the one being three. And we'll see how that, to the best that I'm able to describe it, how that plays out. Secondly, We looked at the messianic claims for Jesus Christ, because this is ultra important. That Messiah was prophesied as coming at a point in history. We saw that starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, but it's mentioned throughout all of the scriptures. And matter of fact, I say the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures of the coming Messiah and certain prophecies proclaiming him. And so Jesus, he had to meet each and every, or should say fulfill, each and every one of those prophecies in order for him to, to be Messiah. We saw the series of fulfilled prophecies. Messiah is the seed of women in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, amongst one and so many others. But again, if he does not fulfill these prophecies, then things in the scriptures, the word of God, it really starts to fall apart. And that's one thing about truth. Truth can't fall apart. There can't be partial truths about the truth to be a whole truth because just any one little aspect of a truth, if it's not true, then everything falls apart. We saw that the odds of Jesus fulfilling these Old Testament scriptures as Messiah would be as if you went to the state of Texas and you covered the state of Texas with silver dollars. You painted one of the silver dollars red and dropped it wherever you decided to randomly, got somebody, put him in the middle of the state, which I've determined to be Austin, Texas. I don't know how true that is. You blindfolded the person and told him to go pick up a silver dollar, 
go pick up the red silver dollar. And they would wander around Texas forever long, they thought necessary, on top of all those silver dollars. And at some point, bent over, picked one up. Do you think you'd ever get the red one? Uh, I don't remember what the odds were. Ten, I didn't write it down. Ten to like the 26th power, something like that, which is just astronomical. Well, Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament scriptures concerning him. Thirdly, we looked at the deity of Christ. John chapter 8, verse 58 through 59, obviously Jesus was referring to himself here as God. Jesus said to them, the Jews, the Jews, uh, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, said to them, most surely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am the tetragrammatron from uh, Exodus chapter 3. We realize that they understood that Jesus was proclaiming to be God because it says they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus went, Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. And so Jesus is saying, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the I am. I am the God who is. And then we looked at a series of scripture that directly proclaim him to be God. And what I have done in my Bible, I have looped all of these scriptures together. If somebody, and again, we, I pointed this out last week, if somebody approached you and says, you say that Jesus Christ is God, and you say that this is the word of God, show me where it says that, are you able to do that? If somebody would approach you and, and, and challenge you as far as the scriptures calling Jesus Christ God, now there's been many arguments of the scripture I just read in John chapter 8, verses 58 through 59. It's very clear to me, but again, he's not blatantly called God, emphatically called God there. I mean, I believe he is, but I can see how an unbeliever would, would challenge you on that. Do you know a series of scriptures that proclaim Jesus Christ directly to be God? John chapter 20, verse 28, And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Now, if Jesus Christ was not God, he would not receive that from Thomas. It would be blasphemy for him to receive that. It would be sin for him to receive it, but he did not rebuke him. In Romans chapter 9, verse 5, of whom are the fathers from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Apostle Paul wrote that under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Next to that I have written Titus chapter 2, verse 13 looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not looking for an appearance of God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. He's looking for the appearance of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. From there, I think we went over to Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah chapter 44. I don't remember the, the verse, but it says, there is no other Savior, I know not one, other than God. And so you take those and join those two together. You join the totality of Scripture together, and you get the truth of who Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. The Father is being quoted here, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Do your homework. Check it out. But to the Son, he, the Father, now the Hebrews is quoting Psalms, was quoting the Father, but to the Son, he says, this is the Father speaking, your throne, O God, is forever. And then in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained like precious faith with us 
by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, he's not saying righteousness of our God and righteousness of our Savior. They're joined, to do, joined together. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to see a little bit later on, Jesus Christ had to be God. Had to be God, because the Word tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If all mankind has sinned and fallen short of the glory, then Jesus, if he's just man, he would have sinned and he would have gone to the cross paying the price for his own sins. But since he's God, it takes him out of that equation of all have sinned and puts him into the place where he was sin-free. Henceforth, he could pay the price for the sins of mankind. Again, Scripture, there has to be a harmony between all Scripture. Fourthly, we saw the incarnation and humanity of Jesus Christ. Incarnation is Jesus becoming flesh. Now, incarnation is the divine act by which the Son became human flesh. The best section of Scripture for that is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It really gives us some detail here. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God or in the essence of God or the core of him was God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Again, with anybody else, it's blasphemy, it's a sin. But for Jesus, it was not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That means he emptied himself of certain attributes that God possessed. Remember, while Jesus was here, he was not all-knowing. He obviously was not omnipresent. There was certain things that he had emptied himself of in order to come and commune with mankind. Made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, <clears throat> excuse me, and coming in the likeness of men. Now, he was fully human when he was here, but he was also fully God. How could somebody do that? He's God. He's beyond us. He was able to do it. It's the point that was being made here. It says in verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Because he did all of that, God had highly exalted him, and, and he went to the cross, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Actually, I left out verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. That is why Christ could pay the price for sin, because again, he was sin-free. He was that lamb without blemish. A lot of the things in the Old Testament are all pointing towards Jesus Christ. This morning we saw that it was, well, the firstborn was the Lord's. If you had a donkey delivered the firstborn from that donkey, you would sacrifice to the Lord. If you had a son, firstborn son, well, you wouldn't sacrifice him, but you would make a sacrifice for him. Because again, the firstborn is always pointing towards Jesus Christ. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All those previous sacrifices are all pointing towards the sacrifice that Christ made upon the cross. Another interesting fact that is there, because it says in A, right under Philippians, interesting fact. I, I saw that and I just thought it was, I thought it was very interesting. If a virgin was able to conceive, if that, and that's an impossibility, but if a virgin was able to conceive apart from knowing a man, she would be unable to produce a male child. A child will either be male, which is an X and a Y chromosome, or female, which is an X and an X chromosome. 
A woman only produces X chromosomes. A man contributes to the sex of the child by either contributing an X chromosome or a Y chromosome. The woman is XX, the man is XY. So the man is the one who determines the sex of that child. So if a virgin conception is possible, it would be impossible for her to conceive a male child because there would be no Y chromosome involved. And so that even goes further as we get deeper into science and only confirms the word, confirms the miracle of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 10, 27, but Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And then fifthly, we actually had five points Last week, we looked at the miracles of Jesus Christ. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. The word attested to exhibit evidence for the purpose of proof in a court of law. Jesus did things that nobody else had ever done. Nobody else had ever done. And it's that which got the attention. But it's not just the miracle. It's a miracle which is a sign. And the sign pointed towards the reality of who Christ is. The miracles that he did showed us that he has power over creation, power over disease, power over birth defects. He had power over the food supply, the feeding of the 5,000. Power over nature. He walked on water. Power over blindness and power over death. Now, we come to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation for mankind, satisfaction for a just God. Jesus' death. Well, there's a, I don't want to say a problem, let's just say there's an issue. We have a compassionate God. We have a gracious God. We have a loving God. Most of the world thinks that my God would never send anybody to hell. The problem is, with those who think that, they have a false God. Because above and beyond a lot of God's, well, the nature of God, He's just. When there is a crime committed, somebody's got to pay a penalty, somebody's got to pay a price. I mean, are, when something is unfairly done to you, or you hear of a tragedy where somebody was unfair or unjust, doesn't it just strike your nature? Doesn't it just frustrate you? Well, we're made in the image of God, so that would make sense. And so since man had sinned, somebody's got to pay a price. God showed that to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they sinned, and what did they do? They stuck fig leaves all over themselves, and they hid in the trees. As I said before, I really think, I don't know this as a fact, the apple has gotten the wrap on this one, but I think they ate off of a fig tree. Because the picture makes a lot of sense. Now they've got their sin stuck all over them, and so they're hiding in the, hiding in the bushes. But man, well, that's not how you cover sin. And it's a picture of good works. It's a picture of self-righteousness. It's a picture of religion. But that's never been able to do anything for anybody. God comes walking in the coolness of the day, shouts out, Adam, where are you? And I can imagine, I'm over here in the bushes. What are you doing in the bushes? I was naked. Who told you you were naked? And God knows what's going on. And so he had Adam take those two little lambs. And keep in mind, Adam has never seen death. I would imagine up to that point, Adam didn't even know that death was possible. It just was beyond him. And God 
I don't know how the process transpired, but I can see God, because that's how the sacrifice is made, had Adam hold those sheep while their throats were cut. Something brutal, something brutal, so he can see the brutality of death. And not only that, he would also see that this was my sin. This, these innocent sheep had to die because of my sin. Well, a loving God, well, he's wanting well, the Lamb of God to take away, who takes away the sins of the world. Because he doesn't want us to die. Because, see, you could attempt to pay the price for your sin, but the problem with that is it will take you eternity. It's as if you could go to the cross for your own sin, and you can, but the problem is you would be there for eternity. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You would be on that cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me for all of eternity? What do we call that? Hell. It's eternal separation from God. And so since no man was qualified to pay the price, and the price had to be paid because we have a just God, he sent the only one who could possibly pay that price. And so first, very importantly, why did Jesus die? Well, above and beyond everything else, Jesus died simply because it was the Father's will. That really needs to be number one, Father's will. Because as you look at the Gospels, you can get the wrong impression. Because there's the Jews, and they're, they're hauling him off. They've taken him captive, and they have him in bondage. And then you have the Romans, and, well, they're lending in towards this crucifixion, and then he was taken to that mountain. And you can say that these people are the ones who killed him. Remember Mel Gibson's movie, um, Passion of Christ? There was a big debate. Who killed Christ? And some people, well, it was the Romans who killed Christ. It was the Jews, and the Jews didn't like that. They were getting the bum rap and all of this. It was, all, it was the Father's plan. It wasn't the Jews punishing Christ. It wasn't the Romans punishing Christ. It wasn't even you punishing Christ. It was the Father punishing Christ. Because the Father is the one who judges. And you stand before a holy God in your sin, and you're going to be judged by God. And so there's Christ upon the cross. And, well, again, back up to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's sweating blood there because he knows what's about to happen. He knows, because it's been the plan, again, throughout all eternity. And I don't think the physical pain was that which really grieved the heart of the Lord. Jesus knew for the very first time when he was upon that cross that he was going to become sin for mankind. Not just the guys who were there, not just the people who preceded him, but for all eternity. The sins of the world were going to be placed upon him. And so you have such, we're not going to go there today, but you have such rich pictures during that time. You've got blackness that comes upon the world for a period of a few hours. Why? Because for that time, when sin has come upon Christ, it's as if there's no hope. And if Christ had sinned, he can't pay the price for sin, and we are in outer darkness for eternity. And so there was just that little bit of a picture as Christ took sin upon him. It's as if there was no hope for that period of time. And even Christ himself, that which grieved his heart leading up to the event, he was now experiencing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the idea is he's not, there's not only the blackness that hell is outer darkness, but there's also that separation from God. Well, you just said Jesus was God, and that's what's really amazing about it. He's experiencing that for the very first time. And as all of this is coming to pass, we have to understand, we have to know 
that this just wasn't the whim of a man or mankind, but this is the Father's plan from the beginning. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 17 through 14, quoting some Old Testament scripture out of Psalms as well, verse 7 says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me. Well, we already saw that. Jesus had to fulfill all the Old Testament scriptures. Why? To do your will, O God. So Jesus came to do the will of God, to perfect the plan of salvation. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Well, they were just given to show the futility of these things, but also the future of these things fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's once for all as far as everybody, but it's once for all for all eternity as well. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. We determined that there was probably close to, I don't remember, I think it was two million lambs that day when Jesus did his triumphal entry. Now just think, if you had a slaughter, two million lambs. I mean, after a while, this is just going to become lamb production. I mean, you're, you're not going to be able to focus upon that and, and, and realize, okay, this is for sin and the covering of sin. And, and after a while, it's just, going to be, it's just going to be assembly line slaughter. Well, that's what's happened during those days. And see, even with the priest, he stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. Again, it covered sin, but didn't take away Jesus, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, and he sat down at the right hand of God. If you recall, when we looked at the furniture of the temple, no chairs. No chairs, because the work never stopped. But now, Jesus has seated, is seated at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And so it was the Father's plan from day one. Secondly, what was the result of his death? Salvation for lost sinners. Salvation for lost sinners because there is no other way into heaven than Jesus Christ. No other name by which men must be saved. If you were here this morning, there was eight to ten people who got saved in this place this morning. We need to realize, we need to understand that's a miracle. We need to rejoice in the unity in that because we all come into heaven the very same way, regardless of who you are and regardless of what you have done. Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. Thirdly, what was accomplished by his death? The fulfillment of the law. The law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What did he cry out from the cross? It is finished. The only way that I can possibly understand the law is in Christ. If I, well, the Jew, generally, the Jew refuses to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Messiah. He's got a big problem. You got a really big problem because they're not able to worship God or cover sins according to the way that the Bible says. There's no temple. There's no sacrifice. 
They're not, they're not doing what God said. And really, it's an effective argument against the Jew. Even the Day of Atonement. I don't remember what the Day of Atonement was or what they have made it in. I know what it was. I don't remember what they made it into, something about forgiving others or something like that. But that's not what God prescribed. It. God's Word is eternal. And it's only fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Since we could not fulfill the law, we're not perfect people, Christ accomplished it for all those who would simply believe. Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect in the uh, Sermon of the Mount. If you want to get to heaven through your own righteousness, you've got to be as good as God. And you have to be as good as God all the time. If there's one, one sin, then you've disqualified yourself. Next, what did we receive as a result of his death? Redemption. We saw that this morning. We've been redeemed. Redeemed. The price has been paid for sin. We were headed for destruction. I've used the illustration in the past of my father buying a BB gun and my mother freaking out that he would give me a BB gun. But and after a while, shooting targets gets boring. And then after you go through all the model airplanes and boats, you shoot all those up, and then you're looking. Bottles were kind of fun to shoot because they would kind of explode and you would get a reaction. And so we'd have bottles and we'd shoot them up. Then at some point in my life, I realized there's gold in them bottles, that you can get money for bottles. And you take them into the TikTok market, and the guy there behind the counter would give you, I think it was a nickel for the smaller ones and a dime for the... They didn't have leaders back then. Leaders had yet to be invented. They were quarts. And you could take the quart in and you get a dime for that. And so these bottles that were headed for the BB gun range, that were headed for destruction, instead, they were redeemed. Now the price paid was a nickel or a dime. You were headed for destruction. You were headed for hell. But Jesus came and he paid the price that whoever should believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Next, what did we be... <laughs> What did we receive as a result of his death? That's not next. The next one is E. What was demonstrated as a result of his death? The righteousness of God. Now, the righteousness of God is the rightness of God. In God's eyes, that was the right thing to do. Romans 3, 21 through 22. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's who they were pointing at the whole time even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. What was revealed by his death? Again, it was the love of God. The greatest expression of God, God's love towards sinful man, is Jesus Christ upon the cross. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. It was the expression of love. And that's what we see upon the cross. We see Jesus Christ. And I see my sin placed upon him. And I see that he was willing to do that for me. I understand and I know how undeserving I am for him to do that to me, for me. And so I see that expression of love for mankind, definitely, but for me, for sure. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though you were slapping the face of God, even though you were insulting God, some of us have blasphemed God, insulted God directly. 
want nothing to do with those Jesus freaks, cursing the name of God or using God's name as a curse, but He still loved you and He still died for you. It's the ultimate, again, expression of love. Who was defeated by His death? That's an easy one. It was the devil. Hebrews 2, 14-15, As much then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared in the same that through death He might destroy Him who had power of death, that is, the devil, and release those through who fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. And so the devil, it says here, uh, he might destroy him who had the power of death. It's not that the devil had the power to kill, but if he keeps man away from a right relationship with God all the way through to the day of his death, the devil has won. And that's the literal definition of the name devil. He's a deceiver. He deceives man. He lulls man. He's convinced mankind. Don't worry. It's the worst deception that the, that the devil has. You've got plenty of time. You've got plenty of time. Probably the one thing that the majority of the people just before they died thought they had. You never know the day. God's got an appointed day for all of our lives, and we do not know that day. I need to know that I am right with God today. And it's because of the grace of God that I have that for salvation, but even through my daily life, through a daily cleansing as well. What was the mind of Christ at his death? We saw it in Philippians, but to serve and to give. He came as a bondservant. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So we know that the cross was the place, the most holy of times, when the sin of all of mankind for whoever would believe on him, well, the price was paid. Again, the ultimate sacrifice. Seventh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the validation of all that occurred upon the cross. What if Jesus died and he's not resurrected? Then how do you know? How do you know he wasn't just somebody else? Because again, you've got all the prophecies of Christ. And you look and, well, Christ fulfilled, this man in point in history fulfilled those prophecies. And then you see the signs and wonders that pointed towards who he is. And you would see something very unique. And you could look at a point in history and said some pretty amazing things happened during this time. You could see that, well, one of the prophecies he fulfilled, he went as a lamb, silent as a lamb to his shearer. He went silently to his death, but you can make a case. Any crazy person could do that. He went and he was hung upon the cross. There were quite a few people during that time who were hung upon the cross. You could see all the amazing things that occurred as he was hung upon the cross, but, well, I guess you can make excuses for that as well. But then he came back from the dead. Nobody's been able to do that one yet. Nobody's been able to be brought back from the dead. And you can refute that, and we'll go and to go into a, a few things concerning that. But also, now he said that he was going to be a, a sin to his father, and there were witnesses who saw that as well, When you can make a case against that, but you cannot deny the changed life of a believer. It's the validation in my, in my heart, the true validation of who Christ was upon the cross. Because I can look at other people's lives, and I can even question that, but I can look at my life, and I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. <clears throat> So the resurrection, the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's, real, that's the best chapter for the 
proof of the resurrection. It was something for all to see. In chapter 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which you stand, by which you also, which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And that's what's been going on throughout all the church age. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, that would be the Apostle Peter, then by the Twelve. Now, by the Twelve, either Matthias was elected then, which he really wasn't at that point, or uh, Judas was still around, but we know he wasn't at that point, Twelve is just a general term that relates to the apostles. Don't get caught up in that. Verse six, after he was seen by the uh, I'm sorry, after that he was seen by other five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. Paul's saying you can even go ask them. But some have fallen asleep, some have died in Christ. After that he was seen by James. James is his brother. It's not the apostle James, but it's the James who wrote the book of James, which is the half brother of Christ. Then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also. We know that was on the road to Damascus. As one born out of due time, for I am the least of all the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so Paul's building a case for the resurrection. And again, we continue to see it even today, the proof of it, in the life of our fellow believers. The resurrection, it's what altered the life of the apostles. What was the earmark of their existence? Cowardice and confusion. Cowardice and confusion. They never knew what the Lord Jesus Christ was talking about. And then any time that they had an opportunity to do anything, they backed off. Peter said, far be it that they would kill you. I'll stand next to you. Peter said, I'll die for you. Peter's, in essence, is saying, I'll put myself in your place, something that Peter never could. And we know, Matthew chapter 26, verse 56, the last part, at his crucifixion, then all disciples forsook him and fled. But it was after that, it was after his resurrection, now they're realizing where, well, their life that they were holding so dear, they're realizing that in actuality, it's hidden in Christ because it, some of the teachings, some of the confusion had to be getting cleared up now. Here's Jesus who said that he was going to be killed, but also he was going to be resurrected. But he also told us because he would be resurrected, we would be resurrected as well. And they bought into that. They bought into that and they were emboldened because of it. Now those who were cowards and confused now have courage because they're filled with with the Holy Spirit. And courage is what stood out in the lives of the apostles after Jesus' resurrection. Peter and John willing to stand before the Sanhedrin. These two common fishermen standing before the Sanhedrin. These intellectuals, these ultra-religious, and they're given account of Christ boldly because they're not holding their lives dear. And as they're doing so, their Sanhedrin is realizing these guys have been with Christ. They don't know exactly if it's because of the same doctrine or whatever, but the witness now is coming through. Why? Because Jesus was risen from the dead, ascended, and sent the Holy Spirit. Jesus said these things would happen. The apostles now are realizing that these things have happened. 
Acts chapter 5, verse 40 through 41. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so it was no big deal for them to be beaten, and later on it wasn't for them to be killed. And then I have the Job reference there, very famous section of Scripture, Job chapter 19, verse 23, where the resurrection is spoken, uh, spoken of accurately in the Old Testament. Chapter 19 of Job, verse 23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. The, the, the idea here is, is Job is drawing attention to this, that they were engraved in a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. An iron pen would be like a chisel or maybe a nail. A lead would be a hammer, and the idea is you would use a lead hammer to do the fine work when you were doing an engraving, and it lends towards the importance of this. And the message, 25, for I know, Job, there's no doubt in his mind, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand, and he shall stand at last on the earth. All proper theology. And after my skin is destroyed, Job knows one day he is going to die, this I know, that my flesh, I will see God. So my skin is going to be destroyed, but in my flesh, I'm going to see God. He understood that there was going to be some sort of physical presence in the presence of God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold, and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. It's an amazing thing that Job could write this, we know again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not knowing Jesus Christ not knowing the fulfillment of the law, not knowing the Old Testament. Matter of fact, Job was before the law even. Job is the oldest written book. Genesis is obviously the oldest book of the Bible. Job is the oldest written. It was written at the earliest of any of the other scriptures, and these truths are amazing. And then, I'm not going to turn there because of time, but we have 1 Corinthians 15, 20, or 12 through 20. Paul is going on, and he says, if there is no resurrection, then we've got a big problem. He's saying we're the biggest fools in the world. <clears throat> because if, we're not, if there is no resurrection, then we are still dead in our sins and our trespasses. The proof of what occurred upon Mount Calvary, well, it is the proof that there's no resurrection. Jesus wasn't who he said he was. Paul never meets Christ on the road to Damascus. But he did, was resurrected. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 20 that... Jesus is the first fruit. And again, to the Jewish mind, the first fruit, the first of so many more to come. We now have a beyond reasonable expectation of resurrection in our lives. And then there's the ascension and the present ministry of Jesus Christ. Remember this morning we saw that Jesus Christ is creator, but he's also maintainer. Since our Redeemer lives, he's able to maintain all of creation but he's able to maintain our walks and our lives as well. Acts chapter 1, verse 9, the ascension of Christ. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they were watching, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That would be a picture of the church age. What is God's intended purpose for the ascension and present ministry of Christ? Well, it was for the purpose of Jesus' exaltation that the Lord would be seen as Lord is all. Again, we have the reference there, Ephesians, I'm not going to turn there. 
The ascension was for the purpose of intercession, that Jesus would be there to intercede into our lives, to minister to us. When we do sin, we have an intercessor who is able to make things right with the Father. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Actually, I will turn there. It's probably the best picture of intercession of Christ in the Old Testament. It says, chapter 3, verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at the right hand to oppose him. So you got this man who's looked at others as being holy, but we see him who he really is. And the idea is, is this divine courtroom. You've got the Father, you've got the Son as his advocate, and you've got Satan as the prosecutor. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And what he's telling him is, yeah, he was headed for hell, but I have plucked him from the fire. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Now I would imagine there's Joshua. He's probably got his linen on, and as he's a priest, maybe he'd been making sacrifice, and he's probably got the blood stain all over him. He's got these filthy rags all over him. I mean, it's that which looks real good to man, looks really religious, but before God, it's something filthy and unclean. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments. He's taken away our righteousness. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. We know the rich robes that we are going to be clothed with is the righteousness of Christ. There's no righteousness in Mike, but there is righteousness in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is willing to clothe us in his righteousness. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. The ascension, ascension was for the purpose of preparation. Remember, again, those scriptures there, John 14. What did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. His present ministry is for the purpose of his dedication. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, the day of your salvation, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The day of man is today. We've got freedom to do whatever we want. God allows that. I mean, if you want to go off and sin, you can go off and sin. If you want to walk away from the Lord, if you want to refuse the gospel message, we live in the day of man. Then there's going to be the day of Christ. The day of Christ, the day of Christ is going to be the day of the rapture. Then there's going to be, excuse me, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the time of tribulation and the second coming of Christ. And then it's going to include the millennial rule reign and probably go all the way through to the great white throne judgment. And then after that is going to be the day of God, that we will be in the presence of God. And so here in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, will complete it throughout all of the church age. And then lastly, we have the second coming of Christ. Again, I have written here, consider the course. Genesis, we are introduced to God. We saw that this morning. God is creator in chapter 1. But as man comes upon the scene, we're also introduced to the sinful nature of mankind. But God never leaves man without any hope. Just as surely as sin entered into the equation, 
God showed us what was necessary for man's salvation. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have the picture that he is going to send a Messiah, speaking of the seed. But the issue there is, it's not the seed of Adam, it's the seed of Eve, spoken of even back then, the virgin birth. In Exodus, we see the power of God to redeem and deliver as God's chosen people are delivered from the world, delivered from Egyptian rule. The rest of the Old Testament, many purposes, but generally to show us the history of the futility of mankind and the futility of man's righteousness, his self-righteousness or his ability to be right even through performing religious acts. In the Gospels, we see the coming of Christ and the word of God <clears throat> excuse me, illuminated to mankind. In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is sent upon mankind and the church age starts. There is a reduction of God's focus upon Israel. God still loves Israel. God still wants to see the Jew saved, and the Jew is still being saved today through faith in Jesus Christ as the gospel is preached. But in actuality, the focus right now is on the Gentile race. That will change during the time of tribulation, but for now, it's the reality of the church age. In the epistles, we see how to live a practical Christian life. Then, there's going to be that one day, the day of of Christ, day of Jesus Christ. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the church age will end. It's a time when nobody knows. It's going to happen so suddenly that everybody who says, well, I'll receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, when that happens, they're just not going to have opportunity to react. Now again, there will be people saved throughout the tribulation, but there is the rapture, and I'll go through that sequencing in just a little bit. The best scripture that shows the rapture of the church is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Oh, so many people are ignorant of the rapture, but here it is. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, concerning those who have died before us, least you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there's a power of the resurrection, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ. So at one point, God is coming back, and with him is coming back those who have died before the people who are on the earth at that day. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Well, yeah, that would be an impossibility. Those who have died are with him. We're still here on earth. I say we, those people who are alive on the day of the rapture, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. Now this connects the rapture of the church with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you see the other scripture there, Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. That'll be your homework to read that. Voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, how can they rise first? They're already with him. Well, they're going to be reunited with their bodies, their spiritual bodies at that time. The same God who created with the Word, with the Word is going to assemble them back together and they will be joined with those bodies. Up until that time, they have been in the presence of God in some sort of physical presence that I can't explain to you. But then they will be rejoined with their bodies. That's going to happen first. They will be caught up to... I'm sorry, then verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. We will be translated. We will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. We instantly are going to have our spiritual bodies. Now, this is not the second coming of Christ. 
because he does not come onto the earth. We're going to meet him in the clouds. This is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. Well, let me get into the sequencing that you see right there in point number eight, the outline of the book of Revelation. So many people are confused, but the book of Revelation is really easy to understand. You have chapter one. We are introduced to Jesus Christ. If you look at chapter one, it's all about a description of Jesus Christ and his ability to judge, his ability to govern the church. Chapters two and chapter three, we have a picture of the church age. You have those seven churches. Two of them are walking right with God. The rest, excuse me, five of them, Jesus tells them that they need to repent. So a picture of the church age. Then you get into chapter 4. Again, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, what I believe is a picture of the rapture of the church. Chapter 4, it says, after these things. After what things? After the church age. Then I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. Now all of a sudden, John's in heaven. And now, chapter 4, never again do you see the church here on earth until the second coming of Christ in Revelation chapter 19. The only place that you see the church is in heaven. And so, that picture in chapters 4 and chapter 5. And then we enter into chapter 6 through 8 is the tribulation. It's as if John is standing on the edge of heaven, looking down at earth and seeing the happenings that are going on down at earth. And then chapters 9 and 11, there's the keys to the great pit. It's the great tribulation. Demonic activity increases as it never has before, again, from the perspective of heaven. Then in chapters 12 and 15 through 18, it's the great tribulation from the perspective of earth. Now it's as if John is on earth and he is seeing these things happen before him. Chapter 13, we are introduced to the Antichrist. Chapter 14, we are introduced to the 144,000. Chapter 19 is the second coming of Christ, when Christ comes to judge all of those who are apart from him still on earth. There will be people on earth at that time who are believers. The 144,000 will be on earth at that time. But the majority of the, of the church, the majority of the world is going to be gathered together in the Valley of Megiddo this is Armageddon, to do battle against one another, but the Antichrist is going to deceive him. Here comes Jesus in the air. All of the saints that have gone before are with him. We're not there to do battle. We're just simply there as witnesses. And as they come, they prepare the armies of the world to do battle against him, and through a word he speaks, they fall over dead. Chapter 19 is the second coming of Christ. Chapter 20 is the millennial age and the great white throne judgment. The millennial age, I believe the millennial age is in existence because God wants to offer man no excuse. It's going to be the perfect time. It's, the idea is it's not quite back at the garden, but it's very close to that. Any sin that occurs, anything that happens, any wars that are brewing or whatever, it's not even going to get that far because Christ is going to rule with an iron rod. We are going to rule and reign with Christ. Who are we ruling and reigning with? We are going to rule and reign with those who came through the tribulation and the children that they produced for those thousands of years. Then, in chapter 20, there is going to be the release of the devil one more time. He's going to deceive. They're going to gather together to do war once more. Again, they'll be defeated by Christ. 
And now it's all verified that man, there is absolutely no righteousness in him, even in the best of conditions. It's then that the great white throne judgment happens. That's where all unbelievers will be judged. The book of life will be open. See whose name is written. So if you're an unbeliever, you stand before the great white throne. Your name is Bob Smith. Books are open. Bob Smith's book is not written there as being a Christian, being a born-again believer. Other books are open. These are the works of man. We'll see with Bob Smith if he lived an exemplary life, if he lived a perfect life. And we see Bob Smith, well, here it is. It, it, it was August. August, chapter, or August 24th, 2014. You fell asleep in Pastor Mike's Bible study. Whatever. One sin. And one sin is enough. And it casts him into the lake of fire, the lake of brimstone, where the worm does not die. And then chapter 21, we have a new heaven and a new earth. And then in chapter 22, we have eternity. Eternity with Jesus Christ. There's no need for the sun, the moon, or the stars anymore. It's then that we will be basking in glory, the glory of God for all of eternity. How are we able to do that? There's only one reason. Because of Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Father, once again, we thank You that You have spelled these things out. Lord, as we look through Your Scripture, there is absolutely no doubt what You expect of men. No doubt what You have done for mankind. And I just pray, Father, that, Lord, as we look at these things, I pray, Lord, as we're reminded of these things, that it would strengthen. It would strengthen the hope that we have in You. And through strong hope, it would also trust in you for today that it would build our faith. And because of that, Lord, that we would love unconditionally as you have loved us. And Lord, because of that, people will see Christ in us and more will come to a saving knowledge of you. Lord, we've seen in your scripture that this church age is going to continue until your pre-anointed day. And on that day, we will be brought to you. And we so look forward to that day. But until that day comes... May we be those faithful servants that you have called us to be. And so, Lord, as we're on the cusp of a new week, I pray for those who have come out tonight that you would bless them and that you would watch over them and keep them, that you would give us opportunity, Lord, and we would embrace that opportunity. Father, again, I lift up our sister Glory that you would meet her in that hospital. And, Father, our prayer is, is that you would heal her. But right now, we just thank you for this evening and the fellowship that we have with you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please?